over the years, there have been a lot of theories to try and explain the resurrection of Jesus. Theories that his body was maybe stolen out of the tomb. Theories about him actually fainting on the cross, not dying on the cross. There's even a theory that Jesus did not die on the cross. He had an identical twin brother. And the identical twin brother is the one who died on the cross, which would explain the resurrection of Jesus. Michael Persinger, a neuroscientist at Laurentian University in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada, developed a miracle-free explanation of the resurrection story. While experimenting on rats, that's a rough start. (laughs) While experimenting on rats, he noted that when the animals were physically restrained and injected with reserpine or similar drugs, their body temperature would decrease rapidly and they would appear to have died. Three days later, they revived on their own. Presumably, a similar reaction would probably happen in other mammals. Of course, it would be impossible on ethical grounds to conduct a similar experiment on humans. Persinger speculates that Yeshua of Nazareth may have consumed reserpine or a similar drug. This might have happened at the Lord's Supper or when he was offered a sponge containing a liquid while on the cross. It is generally acknowledged, at least by some mainline and most liberal theologians, that John the Baptist had been a member of the Essene religious group. There is some evidence that the Essenes used psychoactive drugs in their rituals. Perhaps they had found reserpine, a drug which has a plant origin. Yeshua certainly was restrained on the cross. The soldiers could have believed that he had died and released the body only to have Yeshua spontaneously recover a day and a half later in the tomb. That's meant to be a serious explanation of what might have actually happened to Jesus. Why? Why go to those kinds of lengths to try and explain what happened to Jesus after his death on the cross other than him being raised back to life? Why study something like that? Why come up with a theory like that? Well, to try and explain how his tomb was empty. How could his tomb be empty after he was crucified and buried in it? Something that everybody knew had happened, that was recorded historically. How could his tomb be empty? Or to try and explain how his disciples died for claiming that they ate with, drank with, and even touched the resurrected Jesus. I mean, how do you explain that? How do you explain that these disciples were willing to die testifying that they ate with the resurrected Jesus, they drank with the resurrected Jesus, they spent time with the resurrected Jesus, they even touched the resurrected Jesus? How do you explain that? Or how do you explain that his following has expanded ever since? How do you explain that? How do you explain the empty tomb? How do you explain followers who claim to have seen him risen from the dead, dying with that claim? How do you explain a church A body of people that has grown and expanded ever since that day. 
Well, Dr. Michael Persinger has an explanation. But the more obvious explanation is that what the disciples knew and said is true. What the Bible teaches is true. And what many of you here this morning believe is true. And that is, in fact, that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead never to die again. So let's think about that this morning. Let's think about his resurrection. As we think about it, remember that we're finding this truth in the Word of God. Not a book written by mere men, but a book written by 40 different authors inspired by God Himself. God choosing to reveal Himself to us through the written Word. And so this Word stands alone above and beyond any other words, my your words, your words, the words of the wisest man who has ever lived, above and beyond any words, because they are words from God to those whom he has created for his glory. That's you and that's me. And God has ordained and designed that one of the most significant ways that we would come into contact with His Word and be changed by His Word is through the preaching of His Word. Which is why before every sermon we pray together that God would be faithful to do what He has always done, and that is to take His Word and to reach our minds and to reach our hearts. To reveal Himself to us so that we would love Him more, know Him more, serve Him more faithfully. So will you bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, thank You for revealing Yourself through Your Word. We ask that You would help us now to understand what we're about to read so that we would love You more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 904. Just three verses today. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 19 and 20 and 21. And we're going to intentionally take them out of order. And I hope you'll see why. We'll start with the facts of verse 20, and then the explanation in verse 21, and finally the what if of verse 19. So again, the facts of verse 20, and then the explanation of verse 21, and then back to verse 19 for the what if. So let's start in verse 20. Here's how it begins. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is a fact. It's the word used. This really happened. God the Father raised His Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. Jesus died on a Friday afternoon and would have been buried in his tomb by 6 p.m. that night. He was in the tomb all of Friday night. He was in the tomb all day Saturday and into and through Saturday night. And then on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, on the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. That is why ever since we have been gathering together every week and worshiping on Sunday morning. It is why we're here again today. And so Paul writes, In fact, Christ has been raised 
from the dead. And then he writes this. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So, according to Paul, Christ's resurrection was something. It was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's break that sentence down. Let's break that little sentence down. Make sure that we understand it. Specifically, these three terms. Raised from the dead. First fruits. And fallen asleep. So let's start with raised from the dead. In 2 Kings, Elisha raised someone from the dead. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And in John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Then in Acts chapter 9, Peter raised Tabitha from the dead. And then in chapter 20, he raised Eutychus from the dead. So, is Christ being raised from the dead the same thing as all those being raised in the dead? And the answer is no. No, it's not. This raised from the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, referring to Jesus being raised from the dead, is something completely different. And here's the difference. Each of them died again. Each of them died again. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead, but she died again. Eutychus was raised from the dead, but he died again. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. Technically, the word for that phenomenon is revivication. It's something different. What Paul is talking about here is something different entirely. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead never to die again. That's different. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead never to die again, which the Bible calls resurrection. That's resurrection. That is why Christians say today, Jesus is what? Alive. He's risen. Not that he was raised from the dead then and then died again or lived a long life and then died again, but that he was risen and he's still risen. Today, Jesus is right now. He's alive. So here's how resurrection works. We have, all of us, the way God has made us, we have material bodies and immaterial souls. There's two parts to every one of us. We have physical bodies and we have immaterial souls. And upon death, the two are separated. This is what happens when you die. This is what happens at physical death. Our bodies, every one of us, our bodies go into the ground. And our souls go one of two places. Upon our death, our souls either go to be with Jesus in paradise, or our bodies will go to suffer in a place Revelation 20 calls Hades. And each of those places is not our final destination. But each of those places is a foretaste of what is to come. The joy in paradise is a foretaste of what's to come. And the suffering of Hades is a foretaste of what is to come. And our souls will be in one of those two places. And that is life after death. But that's not resurrection. Resurrection is life after, life after death. 
There's something more. There's something greater. Resurrection is life after life after death. Resurrection is the reuniting of our body and soul. The reuniting of our body and soul. And that is what Paul is talking about. Resurrection. When he says Christ has been raised from the dead. That's the first phrase. That's what he means. He also uses this word, first fruits. First fruits refer to the first fruits of the harvest. Some of you have farming or maybe gardening experience. And so you know exactly what this is. In April, you plant a tomato plant, maybe, or a zucchini plant. You find a spot in the sun, then you amend the soil, you dig a hole, you put your plant in the ground, you make sure that you give it water, and then one day, maybe a couple months later, you walk outside and you see the first tomato. Or you see the first zucchini. Whatever it is you planted, it's the first one. And that is your what? That's your first fruit. So in Paul's day, when it was time for the harvest, the first sheaf or bundle of wheat, also known as the first fruit, it would be gathered up. That first fruit, that first bundle of grain would be bundled up and it would be taken to the temple and it would be offered to God as a gesture of thankfulness. And that first fruit would be offered to God as a gesture of thankfulness because that first fruit meant that more fruit was coming. I mean, that's why, if you're like me, you get excited when you see that first tomato. It worked. It actually worked. I'm not thrilled to have, like, a cherry tomato. I'm thrilled to have lots of cherry tomatoes, right? It actually worked. This is, this is magical. I just put this in the ground, and it's growing, and it doesn't just stay green. Now it has red fruit, and I can eat it and enjoy it and share it with my family. So it's not just that first fruit. It's that that first fruit means more fruit is to come. And so you understand why in this day where they were dependent on this food, they were so thankful, they knew who to be thankful to, they offered the first fruit to God because they knew that it meant more fruit was coming. So that's first fruits. Now, what about falling asleep? The first fruits... Paul writes, of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is not talking about people who had dozed off. Fallen asleep is a metaphor for physical death. Clearly, in the New Testament, fallen asleep is a metaphor for physical death. The Bible describes Christians who have died so think of Christians that you know who have died. The Bible describes them as having fallen asleep. They have died, and their spirits have gone to be with Jesus, and their bodies have been, think about what we say, their bodies have been laid to rest. They have fallen asleep. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 4. Verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So those who have fallen asleep there and here are those Christians who have died. Their souls have gone to be with Jesus and their bodies have been laid to rest. Now let's go back to verse 20 and make sure we understand the facts here. 
In fact, Paul writes, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So here's what Paul is saying. Here are the facts. Number one, Christ has been resurrected. And number two, more resurrections are coming. That's what he's saying. Christ has been resurrected, and he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So more fruit like that is coming. More resurrections are coming. Christians who have died will be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 6, 14. God raised the Lord. That again is referring to the resurrection of Jesus. And will also raise us up by His power. He raised Jesus from the dead. He will raise us from the dead. And so Charles Hodge wrote, The resurrection of Christ is a pledge and proof of the resurrection of His people. So those are the facts of verse 20. And now let's move on to the explanation of verse 21. Now, the explanation in verse 21. In other words, how does this work? How does Christ's resurrection lead to my resurrection? How does Christ's resurrection lead to your resurrection? What is the connection? Verse 21. For, that's the word that connects it to the verse we just read. For... As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. But let me give you an overview of what this means. By a man came death, and by a man comes resurrection. We die because of a man. And we may live because of a man. Two men. Very clearly, right? There are two men. They are the first man and the last man. Or they are the first man and the second man. Now Romans 5 is where this is taught most clearly. And in Romans 5 it becomes clear that these two men are Adam and Jesus. So those are the two men at the end of verse 21 that Paul is referring to. Adam and Jesus. They are the two representatives of humanity. All have been represented in Adam. Many have been represented in Christ. Or they are the two heads of humanity. Each acted on behalf of others. So much so that they whom they represented are described as being in Adam in the Bible. Or in Christ. All are in Adam. Adam represented the entire Human race acting on mankind's behalf. Many are in Christ. Christ represented the many whom the Father had given Him acting on their behalf. This is what the Bible teaches. Adam is our first representative. Adam was in the garden. You'll remember the story. And Adam was in the garden as a head of humanity, which means he was in the garden representing you. He was in the garden representing me. Obviously, you were not physically in the garden. I was not physically in the garden, but you were in the garden in Adam. You were not standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but you were standing before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Adam. That means what Adam did, 
you did. We've got to get our minds around this. When Adam sinned, he rebelled, and he plunged all of us, all of mankind. He plunged all of us into sin with him because he was there as our covenant head. He was there representing us. We hear this in Romans 5.12. Listen to how it's put in Romans 5.12. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men. Listen to how this is worded. Because all sinned. And you say, wait a minute. I didn't sin. And that's what that just said. Let me read it again. Sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. I wasn't there. I wasn't there. I wasn't there physically, but you were there, and I was there in Adam. So when Adam sinned, we all sinned. what the Bible teaches. Now, some of you might at this point think, I don't like that. Now, you may have different reasons why you don't like that. At the end of the day, it's one of those things that's just too bad. Now, you tell your kids something, and your child looks at you and says, I don't like that. And you look at them and say, I don't care. <laughs> Why? This is the way it is. That is the way it is. Now, some of us might think, I don't like that because it feels unfair. And it feels unfair because we may think that if I were there, I would do something differently. But that is not true. And you've proven it, haven't you? Over and over and over and over again. By constantly, when faced with a decision, when faced with a choice to do what is right or do what is wrong, and time and time again, you've done what's wrong. We wouldn't have done anything differently. But regardless... That's the way it is. This is the economy of God. This is how God has set this up. And wait, because though you may not like your first representative, if you don't take this whole covenant thing, this representative thing, then you won't get Jesus as your representative. You won't get Jesus as your covenant head. And now you're going to understand why this is perfect, why this is great, why this is the only way that you could be saved. There was a second Adam. There was the last Adam the second great man, the second representative, the second head, and it is Christ, our head, who was also in a garden, who also stood before a tree, and he behaved very differently. Christ is our second head. 1 Corinthians 11.45 calls him the last Adam. That's what this is talking about. His headship, his representation works just like Adam's. In other words, what he does, he does on behalf of those whom he represents, namely the church, the people of God. This means that Christians, we who are in Christ, as we say, when Jesus died, we died. When Jesus was buried, we were buried. When he was raised, we were raised. Romans 5.19 For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. 
And so we speak like this, Romans 6, 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Or Romans 6, 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. It's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, this is what he meant when Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. This is the heart of the gospel. Christ died that I might die. Christ lived that I might live. So put this together, the facts and the explanation. Verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then the explanation for, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Again, here is what Paul is saying. Number one, Christ has been resurrected. And number two, more resurrections are coming. Christians who have died, Christians who will die, will also be resurrected. Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul refers to it as a fact. It was a fact to him, and it was a fact to many others. After all, on the road to Damascus, some 20 years before Paul is writing this letter, he was confronted by Jesus after his crucifixion. Let me say that again. On the road to Damascus, Paul was confronted by Jesus after Jesus had been crucified and buried. So this is a fact to Paul. As Christians today, we have not seen the risen Jesus. Not like Paul. Not like his disciples. Not like the hundreds who saw him. After his resurrection, we have not seen the risen Jesus, and yet we believe that he is risen. And many would call us silly for that, or naive, or be called fools for this. How can you believe that? How can you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? never to die again, and that he now reigns in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. How can you actually believe this? Well, ultimately, we believe this by faith, of course. We're settled in our minds and hearts as if we had seen the risen Jesus. It's ultimately by faith we take hold of this truth, but it is certainly not a blind faith. It's not a blind faith. In fact, the actual historical evidence of Christ's resurrection is overwhelming. Matt Perman writes, when we look at the evidence, the truth of the resurrection emerges very clearly as the best explanation. Therefore, there is solid historical grounds for the truth that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Let's look at this just briefly. For those of you who believe, I just hope this strengthens your faith. For those of you who are here and don't believe, I hope that you're encouraged to examine your unbelief. So here are three historical realities. Three historical realities that are generally accepted by historians and scholars, whether they are Christians or not. Now, the explanations will be different, but these historical realities are virtually undisputed. Number one, the tomb in which Jesus was buried ended up empty. That's considered a historical fact. Explanations are different. But the reality is the tomb in which Jesus was buried ended up empty. 
I mean, the disciples were preaching the resurrection of Jesus shortly after the death of Jesus in the city where he was killed and buried. So think about that. The disciples were in the city among the people before whom Jesus was publicly killed and buried. They were preaching his resurrection, which of course would not be possible if there was a body in the tomb. They'd be preaching the resurrection and everybody would be pointing out that he's not resurrected. His body, his bones are in the tomb. Even the Jewish leaders of the day who were working against Christianity, admitted the tomb was empty, which is why they accused the disciples of stealing the body. Because the tomb was empty. Their explanation was the body was stolen. Also significant is that the tomb of Jesus was never turned into a shrine. Though that was a common practice of the day, to enshrine the tombs of holy men. In fact, to date, over 50 enshrined burial places from this time period have been found. So why wasn't the tomb of Jesus enshrined? Because it was empty. It held no significance because it was empty. That's a historical reality. The tomb in which Jesus was buried ended up empty. Second historical reality This has always been the most persuasive for me. I can still remember grappling with this as a teenager and becoming convinced that Jesus was raised from the dead. Second historical reality, Jesus' closest followers, including his disciples, his closest followers had real experiences with someone whom they believed was the risen Christ. That's undisputed. People may disagree and argue and explain that it wasn't really the risen Christ, but they clearly thought it was. They clearly had real experiences with someone whom they believed was the risen Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, earlier in the chapter we're studying, Paul repeats an early church creed, probably one he had learned from Peter and James, eyewitnesses of the risen Jesus. And this is what the creed says. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So either these followers... Or these disciples were lying. Or they had somehow hallucinated and were mistaken. Or they really did see the risen Christ. There's no other explanations. Maybe they somehow hallucinated. And thought that they were seeing the risen Jesus but didn't. But they said they ate with him. They ate with him. This happened individually and when they were together. They ate with him and they drank with him. They even touched the risen Jesus. So they were not hallucinating. Perhaps they were lying, it said. That's the explanation. They were lying. They didn't actually see the risen Jesus. They made this story up. But if that's the case... And this is what was so compelling to me as a teenager. If they were making it up, it is very curious, to say the least, that 11 of them died as willing martyrs of the faith. At what point do you tell the truth? At what point do you say, okay, okay, here's what we did with the body. Okay, we wanted to gather a following, we wanted to make some money, we wanted to do this, we wanted to do that. At what point when you're facing death and all you have to do is recant? And these men died. Resolved. No, we saw the risen Jesus. He is alive. He conquered 
death. So he is completely vindicated in our eyes. Everything he said was true. He is God in the flesh. And through him and only through him is life. And we will happily die and depart and go to be with him. Then recant. There's no explanation. The third final historical reality as a result of the preaching of these disciples which centrally taught the resurrection, the Christian church was established and grew again. Did the church establish and grow based on a lie or based on a hallucination? Could that account for the growth of the church then and now? Not likely. And so Paul refers to the resurrection here as fact. So here's what this means for you. If you are in Christ, here's what this text is teaching. If you are in Christ, more resurrections are coming. If you are in Christ, one day you will be resurrected. This is the promise. This is the great hope we have. When you die, Christian, your soul will go to be with Jesus instantly. He said to that repentant thief on the cross, you will be with me in paradise in a month. Hold, hold out. You go to purgatory, you got to work some stuff off. Hopefully your relatives cough it up and see you in a month or see you in a year or see you at the resurrection in however many years that was going to be. He said to the thief on the cross, today, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. So when you die, Christian, your soul will go to be with Jesus instantly, but then one day you will be resurrected, which again is the reversal of death. The body that goes into the grave is the body that will come out of the grave. Your body will not be destroyed ultimately. It will be changed. It will be transformed. It will be made new to live with Jesus forever in the new heavens and the new earth. This is our hope. Here's what our confession says. The London Baptist Confession of 1689 on resurrection from chapter 31. At the last day, such of the saints as are found alive shall not sleep, but be changed. And all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies and none other, although with different qualities, which shall be united again to their souls forever. Paul writes in Romans 8.11 that he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Christ has been raised from the dead. And if you are a Christian, you too will be raised from the dead. There's one more verse. Verse 19. Here is the what if of verse 19. If... In Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, if the resurrection is not true, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then Christ offers zero hope for the life after death. And if that's the case, 
we Christians are a sorry, pitiful people. Totally deluded. If the resurrection is not true, we are of all people most to be pitied. Listen to these verses before. Here's why we are to be pitied, beginning in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our preaching is in vain. What am I doing up here? What are we doing here every week? What are you preaching to your kids and your spouse and your family and your friends? It's all in vain. There's no purpose. There's no reason. Your faith is in vain if there's no resurrection. It's just a sham. You're deluded. There's no object of your faith, no real object of your faith. We're misrepresenting God, verse 15. That means that if there is a God, we're lying about God. We're not on His good side. We would be telling lies about who God is and what He has done. Our faith is futile. It's ineffective. It's not going anywhere. You are still dead in your sins. If there is a God and you are a sinner and you stand before Him condemned, if there's no resurrection, then you are dead in your sin. There is no hope for you and there is only judgment waiting for you. It also means that those who have died, who claim to be Christians, those who have fallen asleep, they are not with Christ in paradise. They, verse 18, have perished. They're done. They're gone forever. If, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, but, is not the word verse 20 begins with? But, and what are the next two words? In fact. In other words, this what if of verse 19, thank God, is not true. It's not true. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So in conclusion, are you in Christ this morning? There is not a more important question. I know there are a lot of important questions. And there are a lot of serious and important things for us to consider throughout our life. But there is nothing more important. There is no question more important than this one. Are you right now? Are you in Christ? Think about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus raised from the dead never to die again, and he did, and he claimed to be God and claimed to be the only way for you to be reconciled with God, then there is nothing more important for you to deal with. It's not something to be put off. It's not something to delay. When you die, you die. And your soul will be separated from your body. And you will either spend eternity with God or apart from him. And you must, in this life, you must come to Christ. 
you're weary, if you're burdened, if you're thirsty, if you're broken, if you're sinful and you are, you must come to Christ. You must turn from your sin. You must confess your sin and ask God to forgive you for not loving Him the way you ought to, for not worshiping Him the way you ought to, for not obeying Him the way you ought to, for not following Him the way you ought to. You must cry out for Him to forgive you and to show mercy to you. And He can. There is a way for Him to extend mercy to you. And that is because He sent His Son Jesus to die in the place of sinners. So that the wrath that should fall on you and the anger that should fall on you and the judgment that should fall on me could instead fall on Jesus. That He in my place could absorb the wrath of God. And now I would trust Him and love Him and serve Him as best I can in this life for all my days because of who He is and what He has done. You must come to Christ today. For those of you who are in Christ, we take comfort in these verses. Here's question 57 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says, how does the resurrection of the body comfort you? And here's the answer. Here's our great hope revealed in these verses. Not only will my soul be taken immediately after this life to Christ its head, but also my very flesh will be raised by the power of Christ reunited with my soul and made like Christ's glorious body. Amen. We have opportunity now to respond 